Today, we explore one of the fundamental technologies that we need to be able to reach and explore space, the rocket. We will talk about what they are, the basic principles of how they work, and how they can move us through space. Almost everyone is familiar with the word rocket, but what does it actually mean? Last week we discussed orbits, but how do we move around in space? How do we change our orbit? And how do we reach an orbit in the first place? On Earth, we have a variety of vehicles. Most of our vehicles push off against something in order to move forward. Cars and bicycles use the friction of wheels to push backwards on the road and move the vehicle forward. Now obviously, we don't have roads to drive through space, so that model doesn't really help us. What about an airplane? Now there are various types of airplane engine, but the general principle is to accelerate air backwards. The airplane pushes off against this air and generates thrust. And this comes from the conservation of momentum. If there are no external forces acting on a system, the momentum is constant. You may have heard this as Newton's third law. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. The plane is pushing the air backwards with a certain force, so the air pushes the airplane forward with the same force. This conservation of momentum is actually a consequence of Noether's theorem. Named for Amelie Emmy Noether. Now she was a brilliant German mathematician. And I know that my word might not carry too much weight in that regard, but Einstein himself called her a mathematical genius in a letter to the New York Times. Now, conservation laws are very important in physics. We've already talked about conservation of energy in other episodes. There are also laws for conservation of momentum, conservation of charge, and more. We often take for granted that these laws are fundamental, but they actually stem from an underlying symmetry. And Noether figured out that continuous symmetry implies a conservation law, and vice versa. So for example, momentum conservation is due to a translational symmetry. And when I say symmetry in this context, I mean that if we apply some transformation to something, we won't be able to tell the difference between the transformed something and the original. So for momentum conservation, like I just said, it was related to a translational symmetry. If we have a system of particles that collide with one another, let's imagine a billiard table. If I can move my billiard table to another place 
and the balls or the particles behave the exact same, then momentum is conserved inside this system. What if we somehow took the entire universe and instantaneously shifted it one meter in a given direction? Nothing would change. We couldn't tell the difference if it happened immediately and if it happened to everything. So this tells us that momentum is conserved in our universe, since this underlying symmetry, as we call it, exists. Conservation of angular momentum is due to rotational translation symmetry, like we see in orbiting objects. In this case, if we can rotate an object around an axis and the physics don't change, we have a conservation of angular momentum. Energy conservation is due to a time translational symmetry. As long as the physics acting on an object now are the same as they are at any other time, we have conservation of energy. This sounds like a circular argument that doesn't really stem from anything, but it really forms the basis for why we can use these conservation laws. I really just wanted to introduce the idea of where these conservational laws come from. Because often, we're just told that this is the way it is, and no one tells us that there's another reason for it existing. Overall, it's a beautiful theorem, and it's definitely worth investing some more time into it, especially if you're interested. I also need to be clear that conservation of momentum is only valid in vector form. That is, when you consider the direction. If you think about a bomb, for example, it seems to generate a whole lot of momentum when it explodes, seemingly out of nowhere. But if you add up all the direction of all the particles and their momentums, they will sum up to zero, and you'll see that momentum will be conserved. So why were we talking about momentum? We were talking about airplanes and moving through space. The idea of an airplane in space seems closer to what we need, except we still have a problem. There's no air in space for us to push backwards. At least, not enough. So what would we do? Well, what if you were to bring the air along with you. You don't really need to push against anything. You just need to push something in the opposite direction that you want to go. Take a moment to think about this. Don't worry if you're skeptical, that's good. And you're not alone. A New York Times editorial in 1920 criticized this idea. One of the fathers of modern rocketry would definitely have to be the American, Robert Hutchings Goddard. He really started the practical side of rocketry. He's a very fascinating character, but in a nutshell, he designed and built the first liquid-fueled rockets, and he invented many of the features that are still found on modern rockets today. And all this was done at a time when a lot of his work was criticized, and he had a lot of trouble finding funding. 
And the New York Times piece that was criticizing him said, and I quote, that Professor Goddard, with his chair in Clark College and the countenancing of the Smithsonian Institution, does not know the relation of action to reaction and of the need to have something better than a vacuum against which to react, to say that would be absurd. Of course, he only seems to lack the knowledge ladled out daily in high schools. End quote. That's quite a scathing comment, and you really have to feel for Mr. Goddard. He published an article a few years later where he explained the physics and he outlined his experiments. But nevertheless, a lot of people still didn't understand him, and he continued to be mocked. You might be wondering if the New York Times ever retracted their statement. And they did, except it was 49 years later. Unfortunately, well after Goddard had passed away. They eventually published a correction, stating, quote, Further investigation and experimentation have confirmed the findings of Isaac Newton in the 17th century, and it is now definitely established that a rocket can function in a vacuum as well as in an atmosphere. The Times regrets the error. End quote. So let's generalize this idea and really understand how a rocket engine works. Linear momentum is equal to mass times velocity. Let's imagine that you're floating in space, with no gravity, no external forces, and in your hand you have a baseball. If we think about the conservation of momentum, you and the baseball make up a system with a given momentum, at this point zero. And we know that if you throw the baseball in one direction, you will move in the other direction. But how fast will you move? Momentum is mass times velocity. So your final velocity depends on your mass, the mass of the ball, and the velocity at which you throw it. If you know your own mass and throwing abilities, you're more than welcome to perform this calculation yourself. But for the sake of example, let's assume a 100-kilogram person and a 150-gram baseball. That's 0 0.150 kilograms. The person throws the ball with a speed of, let's say, 25 meters per second. This results in a momentum of 3.75 kilogram meters per second. And like I said, the momentum of the system must remain constant. So the person must have an equal momentum in the opposite direction. 3.75 kilogram meters per second, divided by 100 kilograms, gives us a speed of 0.0375 meters per second, or 3.75 centimeters per second. That's not very fast, but since there isn't any air resistance, we'll just keep on moving like that. Using this method, what could we do if we wanted to go faster? Well, we have three variables we can play around with. 
the velocity of the ball. The faster we throw it, the faster we move. The mass of the ball. If we throw a heavier ball at the same speed, we move faster than with a lighter ball. Or our own mass. The less we weigh, the faster we'll move. In a very simplistic example, we can think of our typical rocket as our person floating out in space with a number of baseballs to throw. And that's what it uses to accelerate. It's ejecting mass in one direction to accelerate itself in the opposite direction. In future episodes, we'll get down into the details of the different types of propulsion, but all rocket engines follow this basic principle of momentum conservation. We can expel gases, ions, pions, but like I said, we'll get more into the details of those in the future. So far, we've established that a rocket engine needs two things, particles and energy, to give those particles a velocity. Now I'm going to introduce the Tsiolkovsky rocket equation. And this was developed by a Russian man named Konstantin Edvardovich Tsiolkovsky. Once again, a brilliant rocket scientist, and he's considered to be another one of the founding fathers of modern rocketry. And this equation of his will provide us with a lot of insight about spaceflight. The equation states that the change in velocity of the rocket, also called delta v, is equal to the effective exhaust velocity times the natural logarithm of the initial mass of the rocket divided by the current mass of the rocket. Don't worry again if that was a little fast. We'll talk about each one of these terms. First, let's discuss delta v that I just mentioned. This is a very important concept in spaceflight. The Greek letter uppercase delta is often used in science and engineering to symbolize a change. And in this case, our v is velocity. So delta v is the change of velocity that can be achieved by burning the rocket's fuel. Technically, this is an impulse, a force acting over a time period. We can use other methods to determine the delta v required for various maneuvers in space. Remember that if you're in a stable orbit, you will remain there. The only way to change your path is to add an impulse, a change in velocity. So this really becomes our fuel gauge for space travel. If we're in a stable orbit with no external forces, we will stay in that orbit forever, and will cover an infinite amount of distance. Nothing will stop us. Therefore, it doesn't make sense to say that a rocket has a range of X kilometers, unlike a car. Instead, the important factor for us is the amount of velocity change we can achieve with the fuel that the rocket has. And that's really what determines its quote-unquote range. Do you remember last episode when we talked about the velocities needed to escape various bodies? 
those were delta V requirements. If you wanted to escape the gravitational pull of the moon, you needed to be able to accelerate 2.4 kilometers per second. Now, it's important to realize that even if a rocket is spending its fuel and changing its delta V, it might not be moving faster. It could obviously be using its delta V to slow down. A rocket may also, and often does, spend fuel to speed up and reach a higher orbit, but this orbit is slower than the original lower orbit. The important thing is that we had to change our rocket's velocity to change our orbit. Now, this isn't violating any laws. The chemical or other energy of the fuel was converted to kinetic energy, which moves the rocket up in a gravitational potential well, which increases gravitational energy, but uses more kinetic energy than what was provided by our change in velocity from the burn. This might be a little tricky to reason in your head, and we'll discuss this more when we discuss orbital maneuvers in detail. This just highlights one of the things I love most about learning new stuff. Just when you think you're starting to understand something, you think about how it fits with something else you already know. And sometimes you have to completely revise how you understand both of those things. I can't recommend highly enough finding someone else to talk these things over with. One of my all-time favorite ways of coming to understand new things is to come up with wild statements. If this is so, then what about if this was like this? And most of the time there's some flaw in my thinking, but the process of finding that flaw helps me understand everything much better than I originally did. And occasionally, you'll find that your logic is actually sound, and it's just a very weird phenomena that you're trying to understand. Either way, you get a much deeper understanding of whatever you're exploring. I find this related to the idea of learning by doing. There's a quote that's been perhaps misattributed to a whole bunch of people, but the essence is exactly that. The best way to learn is to be engaged and to put things into practice. You might not be in the rocket yourself, but thought experiments can be a great tool for achieving a deeper understanding of pretty much anything. And whether you're learning from a lecture, an experiment, or a podcast, what matters most is that you're engaged and you're curious. The more you involve yourself in whatever you're doing, the more successful you will be. So back to that rocket equation. The change in velocity of the rocket is equal to the effective exhaust velocity times the natural logarithm, ln, of the initial mass of the rocket divided by the current mass. The effective exhaust velocity is the amount of thrust generated per unit mass of propellant consumed. It may not be exactly the velocity at which the particles leave the engine. It's more of an equivalent velocity that gives you that thrust. 
In reality, there are a lot of atmospheric effects and different bypass nozzles that can affect this true velocity. An alternate way of formulating the equation is to use something called a specific impulse, also written ISP. The specific impulse is an important value, and it's different for different rocket engines and propellants. But basically, it describes how efficiently a rocket engine uses fuel. Sort of like an efficiency on a car. Taking the effective exhaust velocity and dividing it by the standard gravitational acceleration gives specific impulse in units of seconds. Why do we call this value specific impulse? If we were to integrate the thrust multiplied by the propulsion time, we would get the total impulse. Specific impulse is just weight-specific. We divide our total impulse by the total propellant weight. That's the propellant mass times Earth's gravity. It might be more intuitive for us to think of a thrust divided by a mass flow rate of the propellant. When comparing two engines, we want one that either gives us high thrust for a given propellant flow rate, or if you look at it the other way, uses less propellant to maintain a given thrust. Now if we take thrust and divide by mass flow rate, we get units of meters per second, or speed. And this brings us back to the original form of the equation with the effective exhaust velocity instead of specific impulse. So to get specific impulse, we take our mass flow rate and turn it into a weight flow rate by multiplying that factor, which was on the denominator, by the acceleration due to gravity. And this is just a convention. If the gravity changes, if we're near a different planet, we don't take that into consideration and change our ISP. The external gravity doesn't matter. We're just borrowing that gravitational constant. So why go this extra step at all? Why not stick with the mass flow rate? Well, that's the way people like to define it. One benefit of ISP in its current form is that it doesn't change even if you use different force and mass units since it ends up with units of seconds. So calculating ISP using kilograms and meters ends up the same as if you use pounds and feet, as long as you normalize by the appropriate gravitational constant. And I can't say for sure if this is the reason why we use ISP in the form that we do, but hopefully you can get a handle on what it is and why it's a useful concept to understand. The specific impulse of an engine definitely can change depending on the external atmosphere. A very important part of designing rockets is ensuring that engines have a good ISP in the environment in which they will be operating. Rockets burning in the atmosphere should have a good ISP in these conditions, and we don't care too much about how they perform in vacuum, because that's not where they're being used. And the opposite is true for rockets designed to be used in vacuum, 
we don't care so much about how efficient they are in the atmosphere. So ISP is important, but it isn't everything. We could have an engine with a very high ISP, but if the thrust it provides is too low, for whatever requirements we have, we would be forced to select a less efficient engine that gives us the thrust that we need. So to recap, we can substitute the effective velocity in that Tsiolkovsky rocket equation with ISP multiplied by gravity. And these are just two different forms of the equation. They end up with the same results, but they give us slightly different ways of looking at and understanding what's going on with this equation. The change in the mass ratio is due to the burning of propellant, and that's what gives us our delta V. The initial mass is also known as the wet mass, because it includes the propellant, which is usually a liquid. The final mass is called the dry mass, because all that it includes is the structure and the payload of the rocket. We've burned up all the propellant at the end. So for any rocket, the initial mass will be greater than or equal to the final mass. If both masses are equal, it's a rather crummy rocket, since you have no fuel to burn, and hence no delta V. At that point, it's more of a rock than a rocket. So this is for finding the overall delta V of the rocket. If we just want to find the delta V of one maneuver, we do the same thing, we just take the mass before and after the maneuver. So altogether, this equation allows us to find the change in velocity of the rocket, depending on how much fuel we've burned. If we know how much delta V we need for individual maneuvers in a mission, we can add those together to obtain the overall requirement. And using that, we can design a rocket that fulfills all those parameters. If we use a given amount of propellant, from the equation, if we multiply by a higher ISP, we get more delta V. And this checks out with our understanding of ISP being an efficiency of sorts. Now let's not overlook the natural logarithm that shows up in the equation, because this is very significant. If you look up the function of a natural logarithm, you'll notice something interesting. As the value of x increases, ln of x also increases. In our case, x, the term inside the natural logarithm, is initial mass over final mass. So as x increases, the function increases, but the rate that the function increases decreases. To put it more simply, as we increase our fraction of propellant, at first it makes a big improvement in our delta V. But as we continue to improve the fraction, the improvements become smaller and smaller. We have diminishing returns. Let's have a look at this. It's important to consider that the propellant you're using to propel your rocket itself has mass. In fact, propellant often makes up the majority of the mass of the rocket. 
Let's say you have a rocket that has a certain amount of delta V. If you want to double your delta V, the naive answer might be to double the amount of propellant. So let's look at an example and see what happens when we do this. Let's assume 147 seconds average ISP, and 50% of your rocket is fuel. This gives us around 1000 meters per second delta V. Now these numbers aren't particularly realistic, but they work out nicely with the math, and it'll make it easier for us to understand the basic ideas. If the rocket is 50% fuel, then that fraction of wet mass to dry mass is 2 to 1. Remember that fuel counts towards the total mass. So you start out with 100%, and you burn up 50%. So you start out with twice as much as you finish with. If we keep ISP the same and just double our delta V, we get a mass fraction of 4. So initially, we had two units, one payload and one fuel. Now assuming we keep the payload constant, that is to say, the final mass does not change, the initial mass must be three times higher. Now, to go double the speed, we have four units. Still one payload, but three fuel. And if we want to double our delta V again, to 4,000 meters per second, we need a mass ratio of 16. Our three fuel units becomes 15, plus our original payload unit. Let's do one more doubling, just for fun. If we want to get to 8,000 meters per second, we need a mass ratio of 256. Our original payload unit and 255 units of fuel. So as you can hopefully see, this quickly gets out of control for large delta V requirements. So why does this happen? Let's think for a moment. The reason we can't just double our fuel is because we need to take into account the mass of the additional fuel. We need to carry more fuel to go further, but we also need to carry even more fuel to carry that extra fuel. One final example, with a little less math, just to hammer this point home, because it's very crucial for us to understand this. If I'm sitting in some rocket, and I want to speed up to 100 meters per second, it will take me some amount of fuel. Let's call that situation 1. But what if I want to speed up to 100 meters per second and then slow back down again to zero? This will be our situation two. So obviously, I'm going to need twice the delta V in situation two, a total of 200 meters per second, 100 meters per second to speed up, and another 100 meters per second to slow back down to zero. So when I'm going 100 meters per second, I will need the amount of fuel from situation 1 to come to a stop. But that means that I need to originally accelerate myself and that amount of fuel 
up to 100 meters per second in the first place. And that's where the extra fuel comes in. Keep in mind that this is the ideal scenario. In reality, more fuel also means more structural mass. It's worse than what we just considered, because we need larger tanks, bigger pumps, etc., all to actually use this additional fuel. So let's bring all these limitations together. There are a few ratios that we can define to help us understand our spacecraft. The structure ratio is the structural mass divided by the launch mass minus the payload. We generally want this to be small, because we don't want a heavy structure. We want the bare minimum that contains our propellant safely, so that we can put more of that mass towards the payload. Ideally, our rocket would just be payload and propellant with no structure at all. But of course we need tanks to hold the propellant, and engines to actually combust it and get any useful delta V out of it. The other useful ratio is the payload ratio. And this is the payload mass divided by, once again, the launch mass minus the payload mass. Generally, a larger payload ratio is more useful, because it means we can do more with our rocket. It will be able to carry larger satellites, heavier sensors, and just more payload. In general, the lower limit of the structural factor of rockets is around 5%. Some launchers can do a little better, but this is a rough idea. And let's also assume around a 3% payload ratio. We can actually rewrite our old friend the rocket equation in terms of these ratios. And if we input these reasonable values, and you'll just have to trust me on this, we get a delta V less than 2.5 times the effective exhaust velocity. And in the Earth's atmosphere, a reasonable upper limit for this is around 4 kilometers per second. So let me tell you where I'm going with all this. From that equation, we have an upper limit of around 10 kilometers per second delta V. So without improving the structure factor, we can't get more than around 10 kilometers per second delta V out of a rocket. Well, that sounds pretty good, right? Surely that's a lot of speed. Unfortunately, it's not. In practice, we need around 9.2 kilometers per second delta V just to get into low Earth orbit. That doesn't leave us with enough to get to geostationary orbit, let alone the moon or anywhere beyond. But we have, and we continue to go further, so what are we missing here? So far, the rockets we've been dealing with have been what are called single stage to orbit, or SSTOs. What if we could drop off extra weight once we no longer needed it? This idea is called rocket staging, and the vast majority of modern rockets are staged in some way. And this is what allows us to break that 10 kilometers per second delta V limit 
that we had with our single stage to orbit. If we drop mass while in flight, we reduce the amount of mass that needs to be accelerated, and so we can accelerate the mass that we do have faster. Now there are a few different ways of staging. The most common are serial staging and parallel staging. Serial staging means that the stages sit on top of one another. That means they need to go off one after another. If you're familiar with the famous Saturn V rocket that carried us to the moon, that's an example of serial staging. The first, or bottom stage, ignites and burns until it runs out of fuel. Then, it detaches and falls away, and the next stage up is ignited, and this process continues. This also has the advantage that the rocket engines for the different stages can be designed for the environment, or the pressure, in which they will be used. Like we mentioned previously, this lets us pick an engine with a good ISP for the altitude range in which it will operate. Parallel staging has multiple stages burning at the same time. When one burns out, it's discarded. Many modern rockets use booster rockets which employ parallel staging. The Ariane 5, for example, has boosters that ignite along with the first stage. Once the boosters burn out, they're jettisoned, but the first stage continues burning. There are other types of staging too that are less commonly used, but may be useful in certain situations. Engine staging involves dropping off engines that are no longer needed. Perhaps the spacecraft needs three rocket engines at liftoff, but only one later on, when the mass and air resistance are lower. Tank staging involves dropping off external fuel tanks once they're depleted. This could be useful for low-density propellants that would need very large tanks. Serial staging is particularly interesting from a theoretical standpoint, because all of the next stages are effectively the payload of the current stage. If you have stage 1, 2, and 3, then stage 2 and 3 are the payload of stage 1. Once stage 1 has detached, stage 3 is the payload of stage 2. So once each current stage detaches, the next stage is like a brand new rocket, starting at the height and velocity that the previous stage got it to. This raises an interesting question, which is, what is the best time to ignite the next stage? Is it best to ignite the second stage immediately after the first one detaches? Or should you wait for the second stage to reach zero velocity? and maximum height before igniting its engine. Or maybe the best performance is somewhere in between these two. I'm actually going to leave this case open in case some of you want to investigate it yourself. And you can figure it out with some careful drawings and just a consideration of kinetic and potential energy at the various stages. To keep things simpler, 
you can assume that burns happen instantaneously. If you find the theory interesting, perhaps I can spend more time on it in a future episode. But for now, the important thing is to understand in general why staging is so useful for us. Of course, that's not to say that it's without drawbacks. At times, we might be lifting engines that aren't running yet. Staging also greatly increases the complexity of the rocket, because we have parts that need to detach at very precise times. But in practically all real cases, staging is used anyway, because the advantages of dropping off extra mass are so great that they outweigh the drawbacks. So in summary, first we had a look at the principle behind a rocket engine. Then we looked at the rocket equation and some of the insights that we can derive from the mathematical formulation. Finally, we had a brief introduction to the idea of staging and how this can help us use rockets really to their fullest capabilities. Now, designing a real rocket is ridiculously complex, and there are so many related factors that need to be balanced and optimized. But I believe that the underlying concepts of how a rocket works can be understood by anyone willing to put a little effort in. By understanding the math and physics, we can build up an understanding of all the factors that come into play. And this step will be necessary for the next step, which is to use that knowledge to understand and design efficient systems and to work out how to overcome some of these challenges that are inherent in space travel. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to be notified when a new episode is released, please consider subscribing to the podcast. If you know someone who you think would enjoy the show, go ahead and recommend it to them. Together we can teach more people about space. And the best part is, you get a friend who you can learn alongside. If you have any feedback, comments, or ideas, I would be thrilled to hear them. You can contact the show at theastronauticslab at gmail.com. Until next time, and stay curious, my friend.